We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility uh, Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. T-minus one till episode 100. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 99 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo, the opposition. I know that many of you have your eyes fixed in space and are interested and concerned about the extraordinary accomplishment of the Soviet Union in that area. I have said uh, from the beginning that this country started late in the 1950s. We are behind and will be behind for a period in the future. But we are making a major effort now, and this country will be heard from. That was President Kennedy speaking on the status of the U.S. space program in 1961. During NASA's first two years, Manned spaceflight managers struggled with the problems of organizing extremely complex and technologically demanding projects. The established space science programs continued to produce new data on the Earth and its space environment. President Eisenhower, among others, favored continuing the productive and relatively inexpensive unmanned science programs and withholding judgment on the MAN programs. In his departing budget message to Congress, the retiring president noted that more work would be needed to establish whether there are any valid scientific reasons for extending manned spacecraft beyond the Mercury program. In early 1961, a committee of scientists appointed by the newly elected President Kennedy recommended that we should stop advertising Mercury as our major objective in space activities and instead try to find effective means to make people appreciate the cultural, public service, and military importance of space activities other than space travel. So problem-ridden did Mercury seem that Kennedy's advisors felt the new president should not endorse it and thereby risk being blamed for possible future failures. The scientists believed it would be better to emphasize the successful science and applications programs and the tangible benefits they could be expected to produce. In spite of Mercury's early problems, manned spaceflight enthusiasts were thinking far beyond manned Earth orbital flights. NASA engineers were confident that they could send people to the moon and back. A moon flight was an obvious goal for the manned program, it would be an end in itself, needing no justification in terms of its contribution to some larger goal, and it would demonstrate the nation's superiority in space technology to all the world. In mid-1960, NASA announced its intention to award contracts to study the feasibility of manned lunar missions. On October 25th, study contracts were let to three aerospace firms, 
While NASA could conduct studies to show that man could go to the moon, and scientists could argue that man's spaceflight was of doubtful value, but it would be up to Congress and the President to fund the effort. Then, on April 12, 1961, the Soviets once more spurred a major advance in the American space program by sending Major Yuri A. Gagarin into space for one orbit of the Earth. This was the president's response. They secured these large boosters, which have led to their being first in Sputnik and led to their first uh, putting their man in space. We are, I hope, uh, going to be able to uh, carry out our efforts with due regard to the problem of uh, the life of the man involved uh, this year. But uh, we are behind. And uh, I'm sure they're making a concentrated effort to stay ahead uh, so that... Uh, as I said in my State of the Union, the news will be worse before it's better, and it will be some time before we catch up. Congressional advocates of an all-out effort to beat the Russians renewed their cries. Influential media organizations saw a challenge to America's world leadership, as did many government officials. President Kennedy called on Vice President Lyndon Johnson, chairman of the National Space Council, to survey the nation's space program and determine what project promised dramatic results that would show the United States' supremacy in space. Johnson immediately began consultations with NASA and Defense Department officials and with key members of Congress. President Kennedy's desire for dramatic results did not coincide with what others had in mind for the space program, especially the scientist. Neither Eisenhower's nor Kennedy's science advisors believed that any results from manned spaceflight could compare with those expected from space science and applications programs. James R. Killian, former president of MIT and chairman of Eisenhower's President's Science Advisory Committee, believed that the Soviets' space exploits were attempts to present spectacular accomplishments in space as an index of national strength. Killian deplored the tendency to design American programs to match the Soviet Union's and urged that the United States find its own objectives and pursue them on its own schedule, not indulge in costly competition for prestige in space exploration, by which he meant manned Space flights. Killian said, quote, Many thoughtful citizens are convinced that the really exciting discoveries in space can be realized better by instruments than by man. His views were shared by many scientists, including Jeremy Wisner, a member of the President's Science Advisory Committee since its formation, who became Principal Science Advisor to John F. Kennedy. But what scientists could not or would not recognize was that their excitement was neither understood nor shared by any substantial majority of the public, nor were all scientists marching in lockstep. A minority of scientists believed the space program should include elements with strong public appeal. The Space Science Board of the National Academy of Sciences, NASA's officially designated source of scientific advice, 
discussed the question of man in space early in 1961, and later that year adopted a position paper on man's role in the National Space Program. According to the paper, the board asserted that the goal of the National Space Program should be the scientific exploration of the moon and the planets, but recognized that non-technical factors were vital to public acceptance of a space program. Human exploration of the moon and planets would be potentially the greatest inspirational venture of the 20th century, and one in which the world could share. Inherent here are great fundamental philosophical and spiritual values which find a response in man's questing spirit to explore. Thus, the space exploration program must be developed on the premise that man will be included. Failure to adopt this premise will inevitably prevent man's inclusion, presumably because of the cost involved. From a scientific standpoint, the paper went on, quote, There seems little room for dissent that man's participation in exploration of the moon and planets will be essential if and when it becomes technologically feasible to include him, end quote. However, this endorsement of man's participation in space exploration was at odds with a substantial body of opinion in the American scientific community, and the Space Science Board's assertion of non-scientific values to justify manned spaceflight would be rebuked from other influential scientific organizations. On May 8, 1961, Lyndon Johnson's survey of the space program culminated in a lengthy report drafted by NASA and Defense Department officials. The report recommended strengthening the civilian space program in all areas. Particularly pressing was the need for new and much more powerful launch vehicles. As for the best way to put the nation ahead of the Soviets, the report chose a manned lunar landing. Here's an excerpt from the report. Quote, it is man, not mere machines, in space that captures the imagination of the world. However small its value in military or scientific terms, such a project would not only recover the country's lost prestige, it would stimulate advances in every phase of space technology and give the nation the means to explore space in whatever way best suited the circumstances. With this strong endorsement of a lunar landing project, and, after Alan Shepard's successful suborbital Mercury flight on May 5th, President Kennedy put together a message to Congress on urgent national needs. This famous speech that I played last episode was a call for the country to commit itself wholeheartedly to a long-term project that required sustained effort, substantial cost, and determination to see it through to the successful conclusion. After delivering the speech, Kennedy felt that congressional reaction was less than enthusiastic, but Events of the summer of 1961 proved that Congress was solidly behind the venture. The supplemental budget request to get Apollo underway, $675 million, over Eisenhower's proposed $1.1 billion, carried both houses with large majorities after little debate 
and suffered only minor reduction by the House Appropriations Committee. Congress and the nation were eager to see Apollo succeed, but NASA engineers, while confident that it could be done, better understood the magnitude of the task. Robert Gilruth, head of the Space Task Group, recalled later that he was simply aghast at what NASA was being asked to do. Support for the Apollo commitment was not unanimous, either in Congress or among the public. The public opposition most often questioned the wisdom of spending so much money on space when so many domestic problems confronted the country. Those who spoke for science often shared this concern, but their special objection was Apollo's distortion of priorities within the space program. One unidentified astronomer was reported to have complained to Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois that the space program was becoming an engineering binge instead of a scientific project. Petulant as that comment may sound, it epitomized what many space scientists most feared about the lunar landing project. At this time, space science was a rapidly expanding field offering almost limitless possibilities for exploitation by ambitious investigators. It had been generally supported by NASA for three years and had produced a rich harvest of scientific knowledge, much of it unfamiliar to the public. Man's spaceflight, merely because of man's participation, drew attention that gave it prominence far out of proportion to its scientific value. The pioneers of space science were what one historian has called sky scientists. These were many astronomers and physicists interested in studying the sun and stars and particles, fields, and radiation in near-Earth space. Sky scientists were concerned that their projects would suffer as lunar and planetary science gained support. Lunar science which stood to gain the most from Apollo, counted only a few practitioners who did not yet have the influence of the established space science programs. American science generally was still riding a wave of public esteem and government subsidy that had begun in the early 1950s and had swelled again after Sputnik. Basing their arguments on the indisputable contributions made by scientists to the war effort during World War II, American scientists had worked long and hard after the war to convince the public and the Congress that America's standard of living and position in the world affairs that America's standard of living and position in world affairs depended on a strong scientific base, which in turn depended on generous funding of basic research. By the mid-1950s, government support of basic research had risen to a level that pre-war researchers could not have dreamed of. This new status had not been achieved easily and often had to be defended. Many congressmen would have preferred to support practical projects rather than pure research, which often seemed pointless. Indeed, Congressmen and journalists frequently enjoyed making fun of research projects that had absurd-sounding titles such as The Reproductive Physiology of the Screwworm Fly. 
but scientists had grown increasingly influential in government affairs. Prominent scientists found their counsel being sought more and more frequently by government at all levels, and science had enough influential friends in and out of government to ensure the continuity of substantial level of support throughout the post-war years. Nonetheless, the most prominent and influential spokesman for science seemed to feel uneasy about the viability of their favored status. Every threat, real or imagined, to reduce the support of science or even to reduce its rate of growth was regarded as a potential catastrophe. Many space scientists perceived Apollo as a threat. No one could accurately predict its ultimate cost. Estimates ranged upward from $20 billion, but it would be expensive enough that Congress might trim other programs to provide its funds. Scientists' misgivings about Apollo were expressed in the summer of 1962 at the Space Science Board's first summer study of NASA's science programs. Convened at the request of NASA, the six-week summer study brought together more than a hundred participants from university and industry to evaluate NASA's past activities and recommend future policies and programs. The final report of the study stated that Apollo was just what Kennedy had said it was, a program to put America first in space with no necessary commitment to science. Until the success of the lunar landing could be foreseen, Apollo was and must be an engineering effort, and the engineers must be protected in their ability to do their jobs. Scientific investigations would be phased into the program later, and still later, scientific investigations will become the primary goals. It was evident that these considerations were not well understood or accepted by the scientific community. In November of 1962, manned spaceflight projects were severely cramped by lack of funds. Brainerd Holmes, director of headquarters' office of manned space flight, wanted to ask Congress for a $400 million supplemental appropriations to cover unanticipated cost. NASA Administrator James Webb was unwilling to risk undermining congressional support and did not agree. Holmes then proposed to transfer money to Apollo from other NASA programs, including science. But, again, Webb refused. When the question was taken to the White House, Webb told the President he would not take responsibility for a program that subordinated all else to the lunar landing. The extra funds could wait, he said, until NASA went to Congress with its fiscal 1964 budget. President Kennedy accepted this compromise. Webb's stand for a balanced program should have surprised no one, for both he and his deputy administrator, Hugh Dryden, had repeatedly stated their view that the lunar landing was not in itself the ultimate goal of the space program. It was a project which, to be successful, required the advancement of space technology and science on a broad front. Webb went to Capitol Hill in March 1963 asking for $5.7 billion, which was $2 billion more 
than the previous year's budget request. Nearly 80% of the increase was for manned programs, but funding for space science was also substantially raised by 50% over the previous year's budget. For the first time, NASA met significant resistance to its presentation. The sudden drastic increase in the total budget, 54% in one year, the growing awareness of the probable total cost of Apollo, and the increasing dissatisfaction in the country with the administration's priorities all combined to raise opposition to the manned space program to a peak during the spring and summer of 1963. As hearings on the administration's budget proceeded, the space program drew fire from many sources. Retired President Eisenhower reiterated his conviction that Apollo was not worth the tax burden it would create. The Senate Republican Policy Committee published a report questioning the Democratic administration's expenditures on space rather than on other urgent national needs. Two years before, Kennedy had warned that the cost would be high and that careful consideration by Congress and the public was essential. It was useless to agree that the country should bid for leadership in space, Kennedy said, unless we are prepared to do the work and bear the burdens to make it successful. Under the pressure of Soviet achievements, the commitment had been endorsed. When the bills began to come due, the country was not so sure. In the debate that spring and summer, Many scientists spoke from their particular point of view concerning the space program. On April 19th, Philip Abelson, editor of Science, a weekly journal, summarized the case against Apollo in an editorial. Abelson believed Apollo did not deserve the priority it had been given in the space program. Its scientific value, small at best, would be even less if a trained scientist was not sent on the first landing mission. More and better data could be obtained by unmanned probes at about 1% of the cost. In Abelson's view, neither the military advantages nor the technological fallout cited by advocates could justify the cost of sending men to the moon. After Abelson's editorial, many other scientists expressed their reservations concerning the space program, and a general debate ensued in the press. Criticism focused on several points. The lunar landing program had almost no scientific value, and science would be advanced much more by spending the same money on unmanned projects. The space program lured promising young talent away from other worthwhile research, creating an imbalance in the nation's overall scientific effort. And, the money spent on Apollo could be better invested in educational, social, and environmental programs. Some seemed to feel that Apollo had been promoted as a scientific program and to resent the confusion in the public mind. Hugh Dryden reminded the critics that no one in NASA had ever said Apollo was decided upon solely on the basis of its scientific content. Other scientists agreed with Dryden and expressed their acceptance of the lunar landing on its own terms. 
Senator Clinton Anderson, chairman of the Senate Committee on Aeronautical and Space Services, which was then considering NASA's authorization bill for fiscal 1964, reacted to this debate by inviting several prominent scientists to present their views to the committee. During two days of hearing, ten scientists, including Philip Abelson, who was the first to be heard, ranged over most of the ground covered in the public debate. If there was any general agreement, it was that the time limit set for Apollo was probably conducive to waste and that many national problems deserved equal attention. But there was no agreement that American science was being skewed by so much attention to space. The strongest protest against the program was a written statement provided by Warren Weaver, vice president of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, who listed many good things that could be bought for $30 billion, a price he said was undoubtedly an underestimate of Apollo's ultimate cost. Senator Anderson got what he wanted from the scientist, a variety of views that improved his perspective on the space program. The disapproving witnesses' doubts were echoed in Congress. NASA's budget did not go through unscathed, but the cuts actually made were less than some in Congress would have liked. When the House approved NASA's authorization bill on August 1st, support for the space program was still strong. The majority was 6 to 1. After three more months of debate and cuts totaling $612 million, NASA's appropriation, $5.1 billion, passed both houses by large majorities. Many opponents of expensive manned spaceflight programs would express their objections over the next decade, but Apollo would go forward, carrying, as some thought, the rest of the space program with it. What might have been, if there had been no lunar landing project, was long debated, over and over, advocates of the manned programs pointed out the reality of the situation. The nation could afford whatever it valued enough to pay for. Social welfare and other desirable programs had to win support on their own merits and would not necessarily be given Apollo's $3 billion a year if it were canceled. The politics of a technological project with a clear goal and self-evident success or failure were much simpler than any plan to conquer poverty, rebuild the cities, or clean up the environment. No proof is possible that space science, or science generally, would have been better supported if Apollo had not been claiming such a large fraction of the space budget. In fiscal 1964, when NASA's budget request first encountered serious resistance in Congress, space science was authorized $617.5 million. Its spending authority grew to $621 million and then to $664 million in the next two fiscal years. The entire Mercury project from 1958 to 1966 cost about $400 million. But manned space flight budgets were three to four times these amount, and Homer Newell, director of NASA's science programs for the first nine years, would later recall that space scientists never hesitated to complain about not getting their fair share of the space budget. 
Newell, a space scientist himself, and as active an advocate as space science had, understood and accepted the overall priorities of the space program, as the scientists apparently did not, and they sometimes tried his patience. He would later remark that whatever complaint there might have been about either the absolute or relative level of space science budget, there can be little doubt that it represented a substantial program. Apollo survived the debate of 1963 as it would survive worse troubles later, but the cut in NASA's budget request, more than 10%, left its mark. The following spring, Administrator James Webb would not assure Congress, as he had in the past, that he was confident the lunar landing would be accomplished within the decade, only that it was possible if everything went well. And much could yet go wrong. Spacecraft design and the basic mission operations plan had been settled and the major contracts had been let. Years of testing and design refinement lay ahead. An entire project, Gemini, was still to be conducted to establish the feasibility of rendezvous, bringing two spacecraft together in orbit, on which the success of Apollo depended. In terms of technical milestones, the lunar landing was still a long way off. The science community had registered its objections to Apollo, as had other concerned citizens, and the nation had reaffirmed the commitment asked of it by its late President Kennedy. Those same objections would continue to be voiced, but the lunar landing would remain the major driving force behind the National Space Program. One thing that could be clearly seen at the end of 1963 was that manned spaceflight had an important interest in reaching some kind of accommodation with science. Over the next four years, NASA officials and members of the science community worked to establish a program of scientific exploration that will become the primary purpose of the later Apollo missions. listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.